another welcome to everyone here this morning, and it's good to have some of you back that have been traveling, and we're glad that you are here this morning, and, and also if there are some visitors in our midst, uh, we're so thankful for your presence. Uh, we'd love to have a uh, record of your being here, so uh, you could do that by filling out one of the cards in the pew in front of you, just lay that on the, uh, the pew or Put it back there on the, uh, the table there in that little basket, and we would love to have uh, that record. I kind of feel like I need to uh, give a disclaimer this morning. Um, right before we came into the auditorium for worship, uh, I was asked, when did you have dinner with the governor? I said, what? Wait a minute. I, I won't mention any names, but Gary was asking me, um, when I had dinner with the governor, if you were in class on Wednesday night, we were talking about uh, idioms. We were talking about sayings that, that every culture uh, and every people has or have, have. And so I was giving an example of the idiom or the phrase, uh, what it would be when, when you talk about, well, that's high cotton. And I was asking if you guys knew that saying, and some of you said you did, some of you didn't. So I gave the example. I said, what if, what if, uh, say, my wife and I were out to dinner, and it just so happened that the governor was there, and he invited us over? Well, that was just a what if kind of thing, okay? We didn't meet the governor. We've never met any governor, I guess, and uh, much less did we have uh, dinner with them. So that was just a, a what-if sort of thing in our Wednesday night class. Um, Gary, are we straight on that? Okay. <laughs> we, I don't know the governor. Um, but if I did, see, that would be high cotton. See, that's what you would say, that we're walking in high cotton. Okay, so I've cleared that up. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we are working our way through the book of Hebrews. What a fabulous, uh, fabulous study that we're Involved in, we're going to finish up chapter 5, move into chapter 6. I appreciate Kevin's reading this morning there in Hebrews chapter 6. In a way of sort of finishing up and and touching base with where we were last Sunday, I want to give you um, an analogy of sorts. There was a son who inherited a business from his father. And it sounded like a really, really big thing. The son was going to come in, and he was going to have an office, a big, huge office, all his own, paneled with beautiful paneling, a big mahogany uh, desk, a fine leather chair that didn't squeak when he went back and forth like that, but it was really, really nice. But it wasn't like that at all. Uh, His father, before he... Uh, allowed him to take over the business. The father wanted to show him the ropes and, and so he could learn from the ground up how this company was run. So uh, not only did he not get his office to begin with, he had to go out and work on the assembly line with all the people, with all the workers. He thought he was going to have all these just big business luncheons and, and golf outings, lots of golf outings, and uh, you know, maybe even some foreign travel, but no, his father said, you need to go work on the assembly line and see how we make these products. 
But then after he did that for a while, he also had to go and see where they got all of their materials and find out how to procure them and try to get the best price for those materials. And then after a while of doing that, he also had to go into the finance department and see how do we pay for everything and how do we make this a viable, profitable company. And then he had to go out as a salesman into a, the broader world and try to, to sell this product to the people at large. He had to learn all of those things before his father finally gave him that big corner office. Now that analogy falls short on a lot of different levels, you understand, but that's something about what we see when we read last week about Jesus becoming a son. God didn't just send him down here to this creation and for Jesus to look down upon people and say, oh, those poor little people, oh, they need so much help and I'm here to help them. That's not what he did. Jesus had to become one of us. He had to become like us in every way. And at the end of chapter 5, where we were last week, it said, although he was a son, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Now, Jesus didn't suffer because uh, he was sinful in any way, but God loving his creation so much, loving his people, those that were made in his image, sent his son down to this earth, and just by being in this broken world, he suffered. He learned obedience through those things. And it says, and once made perfect. I thought Jesus was perfect always. It was. When he says that, he's not meaning that Jesus had to become perfect because he had sinned in some way. We know that that's not true. He was like us, but he was never sinful in any way. He was without sin. But once made perfect, it says he became, he was now able to become the source of salvation for all who would obey him. For everybody that would put their hope and their faith and their trust in Jesus, he is now the source of eternal salvation to them. And so that's the end of chapter 5. Well, the end of uh, verse 9 there. And then it says, and he was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And so that leads us into our text for this morning, beginning in verse 11. The Hebrew writer says, we have much to say about this. We have much to say about what? About what, what he just got through saying. Jesus became our high priest, not in the order of of Aaron or uh, the, the Levitical priest, but he is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And he says, we have much to tell you about this, much to say to you about what it means that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And in chapter 7, he's going to begin that conversation. But he says, right now, we can't get to that. There's so much to say, but it's hard to explain. It's not that the, that the author is incapable of explaining it, but notice what he says. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. You're slow to learn. Literally, the Greek is, you are sluggish in your ears. 
Your, your ears have become sluggish or lazy. You're slow to learn. Verse 12, in fact, he says, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. So by what he says here, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, what can, what can we glean from just that one statement alone? These Hebrews, these recipients that he's writing to, are they new converts? No. No, no, no. They, they, they've not just recently heard the gospel and, and are infants or babies in Christ. No. He says, by this time, by this time, you ought to be teachers. What he's saying, you've been Christians a long time. You've known about this. You have made a profession of faith in following Jesus. And you have, have been around this long enough. You ought to be teaching other people. You ought to be sharing your faith and teaching others. But you're so slow to learn. In fact, he says, you need someone to come and teach you these elementary basic things all over again. They, they've not recently received this gospel. They've known for it quite a while. But you need someone to, to teach you all over again. He says, you need milk. You need milk, not solid food. I was thinking uh, back when we used to live in, in Oklahoma City, there was our, our next-door neighbor was also our, our landlord. We rented the house from... From, from he and his, and his wife. And uh, his name is Jim. Uh, he, he was such a precious, precious man, and I, I, just, I just fell in love with that man. Um, he knew so many things about so many things. He, he loved to, um, um, to grow flowers, and I, I almost tripped over these just then. <laughs> he loved to grow flowers. He always had a beautiful garden. Haley used to go out there and play in the dirt, and we would go out there, she'd be in a, in a diaper and a t-shirt, sitting there in the middle of the dirt. And Paula said, Mr. Jim, why did you let, why did you let her play in the dirt like that? And he said, because she wanted to. And so that's the way Mr. Jim was. He fell in love with Haley. But Mr. Jim told me one time, I don't know why we were talking about this, but he said, animals in the animal kingdom, uh, when they have their, their babies, mammals, when they, you know, the babies drink their mother's milk. After they're weaned off, they, they don't ever drink milk again. He said, human beings, he said, we're the only, quote, animals that continue to drink milk even after we're grown. Now, I don't know, I, I don't drink much milk anymore, but man, when I was a kid, gallons a week we would put away, you know, just drinking it. Uh, I'd have a big old bowl of cereal and then a big old glass of milk, and it's got to be ice cold. You know what I'm saying? I, if, if I'm going to drink milk, it's got to be ice cold. And uh, nothing goes better with ice cold milk than, say, a, a handful of peanut M&Ms. You know what I'm saying? Peanut M&Ms. I mean, who am I kidding? I don't, not a handful, but like a, a bag, a half-pound bag. And you keep eating M&Ms as long as the milk holds out. So when you start getting down, you start taking just little sips because you want to keep eating M&Ms. And, and you kind of balance them out until one's gone and then the other's gone, just enough to wash it. Remember you'd eat a big old bowl of cereal, and then after you'd eat the cereal, you would just take your spoon and go, 
like that until, you know, it's almost down, and then you turn that baby up, and it's got all that sugar and stuff in it, and you just drink it, gunk, 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 like that. Man, we're the only animals, apparently, according to Mr. Jim, that after we're weaned, we continue to drink milk. Well, you understand what the, what the writer is saying here. Milk typically is for babies, right? It's for infants. My mama Johnson, um, we, she had eight children. She had four boys about two years apart, and then she had a, a gap of, I think, about eight years, and then she had four more children, three, three girls and a boy. Uh, my biological father was the oldest uh, of, of her children, and she said about every two years there for a number of years she had, she had a baby. And back in the day, they had glass bottles. Anybody remember glass bottles? They weren't plastic, and they weren't that Playtex bag thing. They were glass bottles. And she said, it used to make me so angry. She said, I'd have a new baby, and one of the older boys would come in and, and steal a bottle out of the refrigerator, and he knew he wasn't supposed to be drinking it. So he would go, and he would hide, and he would drink it. He'd go outside, and then when he got through, he would just throw it down and break it. And break it, and she said, "I went through so many bottles trying to feed my babies because the older boys were always stealing them. Milk is for babies. Milk is for infants." And he says, "You need milk, not solid food. But you should be by this time eating solid food. But you're not. You're you're stuck on you're stuck on the milk. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, verse thirteen." is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Anybody who is still on milk has not been acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. He says solid food is for mature people, you know, I would almost bet that none of us after church is going to go out and order just milk for lunch, are we? Nobody's going to do that. You might have a glass of milk, but you're going to have some solid food because that's what, that's what grown-up people eat. We like meat. We like steak. We like potatoes. We like solid food, and that's what mature people eat. But he talks about being trained. I want you to notice this word here. In verse, 13, in verse 14, solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to be able to distinguish between good and evil. That word trained is, is from the Greek word where we get the word gymnasium. Uh, gymnazo, I think, is, is how they pronounce it in Greek. Do you guys, is that right, gymnazo? You don't know. So I'm telling you, that's how, that's how it's pronounced, gymnazo. It's where we get our word gymnasium. What do you do in a gymnasium? What do you do in the gym? You run, you, you sweat, you lift weights, you work out, you, you do things to prepare yourself to get stronger. And that's exactly the word that the Hebrew author uses. You gotta, you've got to be in the gym. You've got to train yourself. You've got to exercise. The apostle Peter says that your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 
So our enemy, the devil, is like a lion. He's, he's on the prowl. He's, he's looking for people. But do you know how else our enemy, the devil, might appear? Do you know how else the Bible says that he might appear? Sometimes he appears as an angel of light. He appears as an angel of light. What does that mean? He's going to masquerade himself. He's going to dress himself up in, in, in a way that on the surface it might appear like it's a good thing, you see. People that have not trained themselves, people that have not exercised themselves, trained themselves in righteousness, won't be able to discern good from evil. You see, it's incumbent upon us um, to spend much time in the Word of God. We talked about this morning in, in, in Mark where it says that Jesus got up very early in the morning and he went to a solitary place. Why did he do that? So that he could spend time in prayer with God. You see, that's training, that he was training himself in righteousness because we as followers of Jesus are, sometimes the devil's going to come at us head on, but sometimes he may come to us as an angel of light. We've got to know the difference. We've got to be able to discern. That's not good. That's not right. Have you ever had a feeling? Uh, let me ask the ladies. You ever had a feeling where maybe you're walking in a store, you're walking down the street, and you feel like maybe somebody's following you? You, you feel like there's something that's not quite right? And, and the more you go, that you kind of get a feeling in your stomach that, that something is unsettling. Has anybody ever gotten that feeling? Listen to that feeling. That feeling is there for a reason. There, there, something is going off in your mind, or in, in, and your gut starts to feel kind of odd, and you're like, something doesn't feel right. They, we, we get a feeling like that sometimes. The, 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 the radar goes off, the bells and the whistles. We, you, you have to discern uh, know what your surroundings are because, you know, sometimes you're walking maybe uh, in a neighborhood that's maybe a little rougher. Sometimes you go downtown somewhere and you're in unfamiliar surroundings and you need to be aware of things because we need to be able to discern that this is good or this is not or something doesn't feel right. Same way in our spiritual walk. If, if, if we've not trained ourselves, then sometimes somebody will say something or somebody on TV or this preacher says that or somebody says this. And if we're not aware, we could be led astray. And so he's, he's telling people. Part of me thinks that, that he, he, he may be speaking in irony here because he's already given some pretty hard teachings. He's, I mean, he's waded out in some pretty deep water already in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, but now he says you're, you're, you're slow to learn. So I think maybe there's a mixed bag. There are some, some people who obviously are mature, but, but there are some who obviously need uh, some elementary truths all over again. And now where Kevin read this morning in chapter 6, he says, therefore, because of what we've just said, because of of what I've just said. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. Does that kind of strike you as a little bit funny? Let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ? This is what he's not saying, okay? He's not saying that the, that the elementary teachings of Christ are no good. He's not saying that... Um, 
you, that they're not authentic, that it's not truthful. He's saying those things are foundational. Those things should be at the very base, the foundation of everything that we know and we do and we believe. Uh, they're, they're building houses in our, in our subdivision. They keep building and we've got two or three that are finished that are for sale and they haven't, haven't sold, but yet they, they keep building. And so it, it's interesting when you, when you drive by and you see all the guys working, they do the dirt work and they prepare that. And some of the ones that they build on the side of the hill, they'll dig down and, and they'll build the basement. And after the dirt has settled and all that, they come and they pour. You see the concrete trucks coming in and that morning they start pouring yards and yards of concrete. And they pour that basement, or, and then they pour that, that foundation. And it seems like, I know it's not true, but it seems like I can go by there one morning and, and see that foundation after it's you know, set up and, and cured and gotten hard. And then when I come home in the evening, it's almost like there's a house there. I mean, they go from foundation to next thing you know, there's walls. They got those pre-made trusses, and they set them there in place. And before you know it, it's like the house is finished everybody's doing their work, doing their job. But once they build that foundation, guess what? They don't build another foundation. Now they build on top of that foundation, right? Once the foundation is laid, no more foundation, but now you start building on top of it. That's what, that's what the writer is saying. These things that he's fixing to list out for us, these are foundational. We, we should know these things. They should have known these things because they're not new converts, they ought to be teachers by now. So look at what he says. We, we want to leave these elementary teachings, not forget them, but, but, but go forward, move into maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death. He may be saying here, talk about repenting from sinful things, uh, living a sinful life that would, would bring about death. But your version may also say uh, useless rituals or traditions. Did you know that there are some things that we can do in a religious way, uh, traditionally, that aren't really spirit-led, that wind up being just dead works? That may also be what he's referring to. Um, I think it was A.W. Tozer uh, who said, most churches, if you took the Holy Spirit out of the church, about 95% of everything that they do would continue on uninterrupted. You see, there are things that we can do as a body. Even though we have good intentions, there are things that we could do that just wind up being busy, busy work, traditions. And Paul refers to that um, in Corinthians, in, in the second Corinthians, um, somewhere in there, you have to read the whole book, I guess. But he talks about the things that we do, building upon the foundation. Sometimes we build with gold and silver and precious metals, but sometimes we build with, with straw and wood and hay, and those things are going to be burned up right? Those things are going to be burned up. But then he says, I'm not talking about salvation, but you'll still be saved as one escaping the flames, escaping the fire. You remember the passage? 
So there are some things that we can do that just become that are just useless rituals. The author may be may be referring to that not just sinful things, but but things that are are useless rituals. We got to move away from that. He says we got to move on um, from uh, the foundation of faith in God. What? <laughs> that's that's pretty good stuff, right? He's not talking about throwing faith away, because we're going to find out just in a few chapters that the Hebrew writer says, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. You see, nobody's going to come to God if they don't have faith in him, are they? If you don't believe that God even exists, why would you come to him? Why would you follow him? So the Hebrew writer's not saying you don't have to have faith. He's saying we don't want to lay the foundation over and over and over about faith in God. Instructions about baptisms or uh, literally of washings. Um, they, they talk about in, in the Old Testament, a lot of these things were we're on the scene long before Christ came. We, we see these in the Old Testament as well. Ceremonial cleansings, washings that the Jews would have, would have been very familiar with, but also about baptism, about being immersed into Christ to have our sins washed away. Uh, is that good? Is that right? Of course it is. It's foundational. It's who we are. But he says we need to, to move past these elementary teachings the laying on of hands. Well, that's not something that we do a lot today, is it? They, they would have done that back in the Old Testament when, when a priest was ordained, the ordination, they would lay their hands upon him. Um, in the New Testament, we see the laying on of hands when they talked about imparting a spiritual gift, possibly even at baptism, uh, to invoke God to, to, to send the Holy Spirit. Um, when I first began my, my work over in Africa, Paul and I uh, had gone to a, um, a spiritual retreat that, that we used to go to every year. COVID kind of messed that up. Um, hadn't been to it in three or four years now. It just started back up this year. Um, but uh, they, they sat me down in a chair, and I got to share about what I was doing in Africa. And, and I think I may have shared this with you before, but they sat me down, and they laid hands on me and prayed for me, some of, some of the older men, the elders. And then um, one of the brothers anointed me with oil on my forehead, and they prayed for me about all the work we were doing. And it was one of the, it was one of the sweetest moments of my life. I still remember that to this day. And I, I think I told you when I went to bed that night, I could still smell the oil the next morning on my pillow. It was so fragrant. It was beautiful. Um, just the laying on of hands and praying over me. Um, he says we need to move past that. The resurrection of the dead. Oh, didn't we talk about this last Sunday? 1 Corinthians 15, that if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ is raised. And if Christ is not raised, guess what? We are all still in our sins. <laughs> not, that's not good. But the fact is, Christ was raised. Jesus was faithful, and God was faithful to raise him from the dead. 
So that's foundational. We don't ever forget that. And yes, there are times in our, in our lives, in our Christian walk, when we just need to revisit, you know, Christianity 101 and talk about what we, we, th- we think of as basic first principles. We need to do that. Um, you guys know my wife was a teacher for um, 17, 18 years, and for most of those years, she taught Algebra 1. Now, at the beginning of the year, she has a layout, a, a syllabus that she works off of, and it says, you know, starting in this week, up to, you know, this week and up to fall break and before the Thanksgiving holiday, this is all the stuff we need to, to accomplish. These are the things I need to teach. And then we're going to take a final, and then the next semester I've got all of this I've got to teach because at the end of school, they've got to take a state exam. And if they've got to pass Algebra one, not just my class, but they've got to pass the state exam if they want to graduate when, they, when they're a senior. So it's a pretty big deal. Well, time after time, year after year, these ninth graders would come into her class, and she wants to start here and take them here, but they're not ready to start here. She's got to go back and reteach things that they should have learned in eighth grade, seventh grade, sometimes third, fourth, and fifth grade they should have learned. One of those things that they really needed to learn was their multiplication table. We used to just call them our times tables. Now, when I I don't even know how old I was, but it seems like when you're like in second, third grade, maybe fourth, you you begin to learn your multiplication table. Zero all the way up to, say, 12. After 12, you know, you're starting to get into some bigger numbers and you deal with that differently. But... Anywhere from 0 through 12, it it ought to just be in your brain, just be in your mind. You don't even think about it. If I said 6 times 6, what would you say? 36. Did Did you think about that? Did you compute it? Did you say, see, alt from alt is alt and carry the one? No. You just just knew 6 times 6 is 36. What if I said 8 times 8? Somebody went to school. You just know that. You don't learn it. It's in your brain. But somewhere along the line, our, our education system said, let's don't make kids memorize anything. That, that's, that, that clutters their brain. They don't need to know that. They can just put that in a calculator. Oh, my. That causes so many problems when you get to Algebra 1 because that's a lot of what it is. It's just knowing your, your times table being able to multiply and be able to divide. It's so foundational. That's what resurrection of the dead is. But he's saying, we've got to move past that. And what about eternal judgment? Do you guys know that there's a day coming when Christ is going to return and judge the living and the dead? That all the dead in Christ are going to be raised? In fact, everybody's going to be raised. Every human being that's ever lived will be raised from the dead. And then just like the sheep and the goats, they'll be separated. The righteous, the unrighteous, those who believed, those who didn't believe, those who had faith, those who didn't have faith. And they'll be separated. Those who believed and had faith will live in eternity with God. Those who did not believe, who did not have faith, will be punished with everlasting destruction, the fire that will consume them. That's foundational. 
But he says, we've got to leave this and move on to maturity. In verse 3, God permitting, he says, we will do so. So let me say to you, as we close this morning, um, there are sometimes I, I, I tell my wife, I said, it's so difficult when you, when you preach a sermon, when you're cruising at, say, 30,000 feet, and you're talking about all these things, it, somehow I don't know how to land the plane because I, I, I grew up in the Church of Christ. This is, this is my faith tradition, and I love this tradition, and I don't ever want to go uh, anywhere else. But part of our faith tradition is that at the end of every sermon, we feel like we have to offer the invitation. Some churches may call it an altar call, where we call people to, to come forward and to make a confession of faith, uh, to give their lives to Christ. And sometimes when you're dealing with a certain passage, a certain text, I'm just going to be honest with you, it just doesn't really lend itself to the offering of an invitation. Because I think to myself, when I look around and I see you and I see your walk with the Lord, and I know you've been walking with the Lord for many, many years, you don't need to hear the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus every Sunday. You know that. You believe it. You're living it. You're trying your best to follow Jesus Christ. And so, sometimes, some Sundays, it, it, it just seems to me like it doesn't fit for me to stand down here, and now I feel like I need to preach a second mini-sermon about 1 Corinthians 15, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and being baptized into Christ to have your sins washed away. So, moving forward, I'm going to say to you, there may be Sundays, there may be several Sundays, where I don't offer that, that invitation the way that we're used to hearing it. We need to move past the elementary teachings into more mature things. Now, we have an elders meeting tomorrow afternoon. So if next Sunday I offer that invitation, and then the next Sunday I do, and the next Sunday, you'll know that we had a conversation. <laughs> and if that's what the elders desire for me to do, that's what I'll do. That's what I'll do. Because I, I, I respect their wisdom. But, but do you understand what I'm saying? It's, to use another idiom, I feel like I'm, I'm preaching to the choir, you see, every Sunday, because you know these things. We don't ever want to forget them because they're foundational. It's who we are. We're not throwing them away. It's just that we're not spending all of our time talking about those anymore because we want to grow. We want to be found to be mature complete in Christ, lacking no good thing.